Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. To hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, bad entrepreneurs abound on new streaming series like The Dropout, We Crashed, and Super Pumped, feeding into our culture's fascination with doomed CEOs. Plus, our stir-crazy age seeks escapism in dark, twisted shows like the workplace thriller Severance, the high school drama Euphoria, and a slew of horror series. And Pixar's animated Turning Red is led by Oscar winner Domi Shi, the first woman and the first Asian woman filmmaker to direct a feature for the studio. Those stories and more on our Pop Culture Roundtable. Later in the show, the late Toni Morrison had an enduring concern about slavery and its legacy. It's the core of her first novel, The Bluest Eye, which has been adapted into a play. We, myself and the incredible design team, were really thinking about what does it mean for us to gather now? And we have this incredible story that we'd like to share. And it felt really organic to say, let's, let's come together and sit in a circle and listen to this story together. The Huntington Theatre Company's production of The Bluest Eye tackles dark, tragic themes while still stressing hope and love. But first, joining me remotely, Michael Jeffries, Dean of Academic Affairs and Professor of American Studies at Wellesley College. Hi, Michael. Hi, Kelly. And also with me, Linda Liu, lecturer of sociology at UMass Boston, specializing in cinema, media, and cultural studies. Welcome, Linda. Thanks. I'm happy to be here, Kelly. Happy to have both of you. Let's just jump right in with uh, these bad entrepreneurs. And the question, of course, is why are we attracted to it? We meaning we viewers, we American viewers. And what is the impact of having so many of these stories back to back to back? Here's a clip from the trailer of the Hulu series, The Dropout. The world works in certain ways until a new great idea comes along and changes everything. What if you could test your blood in your own home? And what if it wasn't a whole vial, but just a drop? I'm going to drop out to Stanford. This machine is going to change the world. And of course, that's the story about Elizabeth Holmes, who has just been to court for bad business in founding the company Theranos, um, which purported to be able to tell you all about yourself through one drop of blood. Just want to play a couple more clips so that we can set the whole mood for it. This is from the trailer of the Apple TV Plus series, We Crashed. This is what tomorrow looks like. Let there be lights and wide open spaces. This isn't a place for people to punch in and out. WeWork's role is to elevate the world's consciousness. (laughs) WeWork isn't just a company. It's a movement. When I say we, you say what? We, 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 we. 
That's about WeWork, literally, the company and all of its troubles and uh, its problematic leadership. And finally, here's a clip from the trailer of the Showtime series Super Pumped, The Battle for Uber. My name is Travis. I am the founder and CEO of Uber. And contrary to what you might have read, I am not a monster. The notorious bad boy of tech. Are you willing to listen to wise counsel? I will always listen, but I will never take orders. Is this legal? <laughs> okay, Linda. What is the fascination? And I want to just uh, frame it this way also. A lot of these uh, series now, these fictionally fictional series based on the truth, are followed uh, many, many documentaries, stories, all kinds of investigations. Um, so we presumably know those stories. But yet all of uh, these series are drawing so much attention. Right. Yes. Um, so I think... The interest that so many Americans have in stories like this, it's a little bit different now. I think the current crop of uh, streaming series focuses on um, figures, founders, entrepreneurs, um, startup people who fake it until they make it. And so sometimes their products are, are pretty much nearly bogus, if not entirely bogus. But I think... The shows themselves seem to be kind of uh, fascinated in how they were able to pitch and charm and kind of scam their way into uh, multi-billion dollar companies. Why do you think, though, there is so much interest in series that focus on this kind of bad behavior and scamming? Right. Well, I think since they're so ripped out of the headlines, having having something that people can just kind of binge but in a limited series format is kind of the business model nowadays. I'm not really sure why for this particular kind of story. I mean, I, I guess they could be movies, but that's how a lot of these are being made. Well, I guess, Michael, what I'm trying to get at is, is it is it something in us in this moment in time, if this moment in time has anything to do with it, that makes these stories particularly attractive? And um, to both of you, after you answer that question, you know, what, what, is there any kind of impact negatively on our sort of being fed a diet and actually looking for a diet of these kinds of stories? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's an interesting moment. Um, as, as Linda mentioned, I think there is something to the theory that the brevity of the, of the format allows you to consume it pretty quickly and allows you to kind of keep up with the news. Maybe you didn't know the story of WeWork or you didn't really know the story of Theranos. I think the other piece of this is uh, what these stories do often is expose someone, right? They expose a bad actor who took advantage of the system, who wasn't playing by the rules, and then uh, they failed, right? The The business failed. The person was hopefully held accountable. Um, and and that, that is part and parcel of a narrative about our economy, right? So it, the failures then of the economy, I think, it, it gets easier and easier to attribute them to a couple of bad actors, right? The CEO did mm -hmm. this. They lied. They schemed their way to the top. And that's why uh, work isn't working for us. When really uh, what the pandemic has revealed in so many ways is that it's not just a few bad actors uh, that have messed up the economy uh, or that have forced us to rethink what work is. It's the structures that we had in place. When you have an economy that doesn't provide uh, a workplace that doesn't provide uh, parental leave, uh, 
when you have workplaces that are sort of surveilling employees in all kinds of ways, uh, those are ills that are not attributable to the bad behavior of one or two CEOs. That's about the structure of work. So I think we need to be careful when we attribute problems to the workplace, not to attribute them to just a few bad actors. because It's a very seductive narrative that covers up some of the more serious problems. So is that the negative impact, the seductiveness of believing that if we could just get rid of these few bad apples, we're good? I think so. And, and the other thing that's seductive about it is, right, if you believe in the kind of entrepreneurial culture, of, in particular, the world of tech, but just kind of an entrepreneurial culture in general in business, it allows you to say, right, they messed up because they didn't did it, do it correctly, but there's still hope for me and other folk who play by the rules, right? It allows you to kind of stay in the game because you see that the folks who got to the top didn't get there the right way. And it, it becomes a more uh, seductive, perhaps realistic, realistic or seductive possibility for you, depending on how you want to look at it, for you to make it, for you to be the next entrepreneur, because you're not going to make the same mistakes that those people did. So, Linda, uh, the same question to you about negative impact. And I just want to add that I what Michael just described is not me because I don't have the entrepreneurial thing going on for myself. So I watch when I watch them because I can't watch all of them because I just get mad is because I cannot believe they got away with it. It seems so obvious that they are selling a load of crap and people, you know, well, obviously, and people are buying it. And so I'm watching it mad the whole time. Like, really? <laughs> if you are just a certain kind of person, you can sell this and people will buy it? It's ridiculous. But I want to hear from you about if you feel there's any negative impact of our, you know, gobbling up this diet of, of uh, stories about these bad actors. Definitely. There definitely will be some kind of negative impact. Um, I think there may be also some positive impact in that people will kind of see how these entrepreneurs were able to deceive people, how kind of manipulative they were, and just kind of um, be able to see that as a, uh, as a type, right, as a, as a figure and kind of recognize it. But I also take Michael's point that these shows in focusing so much on individual figures and their personalities and uh, individual bad behavior is kind of papering over, covering over greater structural problems with work, a lot of which were uh, exacerbated, of course, with COVID. Um, and I think that's that's pretty interesting because it's hard, I think, especially in a fictional series to actually make those kind of structural problems interesting hmm. and to actually kind of dramatize those right without actually kind of focusing on um, one interestingly sociopathic personality for instance hmm. but I'm hoping this won't be true but I also think that some of the sequences in the series might even become like these inspirational scripts for people who actually want to become startup founders or entrepreneurs themselves, and that they might just kind of see these as a how-to, like um, how to actually <clears throat> make a pitch, right, and how to actually um, kind of hustle and charm. Well, actually, I should put the button on this a particular conversation by saying the author of Liar's Poker, it was one of the first books about Wall Street, thought he had written an investigative piece about 
all of the ills of Wall Street and all the kind of stuff that comes up in some of these series. And in fact, he was shocked when uh, the response that he got, and he says continues to get to some degree, are from people who say, wow, that was great. Now I know how I can get on Wall Street. And he's like, no, no, no. That's not the point. Um, and, and so it's kind of interesting that, you know, it, to your point, that people are looking at it as a as a blueprint uh, to some degree. So I'm guessing we're going to see a few more of these limited series because there's some more like them in the, in the wings, apparently. Well, let me move on to our fascination again, because, Michael, you've been on when we've talked about around Halloween time, particularly that the interest in horror in general seems to be over the top which I find extremely odd if you're living in a horrific time or if there's more real-life horror. Why are you going for something to add to it that seems realistic? Uh, I'm going to play this clip from the trailer of a Netflix series called Archive 81. We're looking for an artist, someone who can restore a recently acquired collection of damaged videotapes. Well, what kind of damage? Fire damage. There's just one hitch. Because the materials are so fragile, they can't be moved. So you'd be doing the work at our remote research facility. Creating this archive, putting this puzzle together, well, it would mean the world to everyone who lost someone in that fire. So a shout-out to our former colleague here at GBH, Mark Solinger. That was uh, his story idea in a podcast he created called Archive 81, and Netflix bought the story and turned it into this series. It was creepy then. I could not listen to it then when he was here. So <laughs> this is not my cup of tea. But why, Michael? Why are we into this? We, meaning the larger we. Well, I think, you know, the the horror genre is so much more complex than we give it credit for sometimes. I mean, I think that um, it it allows us to deal with some of the anxieties that we have, certain, you know, characters from horror movies actually represent greater forces, some of the things that we were just talking about before. But I think also um, one of the things that um, horror films did, especially when you were consuming them in theaters, is they made the movie going experience a highly collective experience, right? Because you would go and there was the expectation of screaming and shouting and laughing and don't go in there, right? When, yes, when you were watching the film, right? <laughs> and I think there's, a, there's an urge to have those kind of collective viewing experiences again, even if you can't do it in a theater or if you're not going back to theater to consume them, you're consuming them on streaming services. That kind of instant reaction that you have to a collective viewing experience where you're scared at the same time time and you know the person watching you is having these very sort of basic reactions to the film that's a powerful way i think to bond audiences together so, so one of my takes on it is it's actually a way for us to bring audiences watching audiences closer together because that's the kind of the nature of the genre is it creates these collective viewing experiences hmm. where there's so much kind of less open to interpretation everyone's shocked at the same things everyone's scared everyone's screaming at the same time uh, that's a nice uh, set of tools for production companies to have if they're trying to create attractive uh, films and, and television shows for us to consume. Linda? I'm interested in what Michael just said about the uh, the collective viewing experiences with horror films and how that was a big part of the appeal. I think what's interesting with these streaming series is that um, ostensibly one would watch them in their own home Maybe there would be groups of friends coming over, uh, watching as well, but um, you would conceivably be watching these 
just kind of on your own and then getting scared on your own and, you know, not having that kind of collective experience. Which is why I would never watch. <laughs> right. That makes it scarier, actually, uh, if you're going to go with the, because I couldn't even imagine. But it's fascinating. And um, I think there's definitely uh, a trend where we're, that's not going to go away anytime soon. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me is Michael Jeffries, Dean of Academic Affairs at Wellesley College, and Linda Liu, Sociology Lecturer at UMass Boston. It's our Pop Culture Roundtable discussion. Now, for me, what's really scary, what's really horror, or any kind of workplace dramas, or even comedies. I never watched The Office. It was not funny to me. So here we have something that's really scary on uh, Apple TV Plus series called Severance. And the concept, which is fascinating, particularly in this time as we're all discussing what is the nature of work, is that uh, uh, employees would have surgery to separate out their work selves and their home selves. So when you're at work, you never think about home. And when you're at home, you don't think about work. And that allows the two selves to function, presumably without stress. Of course, there's a lot of other stuff going on in the series. um, But that's the essence of it. And I think it raises many other issues. So first, here's a clip from the trailer of the Apple TV Plus series Severance. Hello, my name is Mark S. And I have, of my own free accord, elected to undergo the procedure known as severance. I give consent to sever my memories between my work life and my personal life. I acknowledge that once the procedure is complete, I will be unable to access my personal memories whilst on the severed floor. That, to me, is horrifying, Michael. (laughs) Yeah, it's a great example, though, something we were talking about earlier, this notion that it's difficult to dramatize some of these larger workplace issues. And yet this show, I think, um, does a pretty good job achieving that dramatization by sticking with this concept of work-life balance or separation between work and home. Um, We know, right, I think we know that one of the things the pandemic has revealed is the extent to which that is just truly impossible, right? That folks are always balancing those things, no matter where you're physically located, whether you're working from home or working in an office or some other uh, physical space. Uh, The separation is never truly complete. I think the challenge in front of so many of us is trying to figure out um, a more healthy fusion uh, when appropriate and when possible uh, of those two selves. And also trying to deal with this moment of what connection to others in the workplace looks like. Um, Because when you're at your job, it's social. You're not just a machine performing these tasks in a vacuum. You're collaborating with other folks. That's a huge part of working culture. So there's a social life at work too that is really difficult, impossible truly um, to separate. And you are bringing your own kind of personality and experiences to those work relationships as well. So I think it's a great concept and a great example of dramatizing a bigger picture, a structural issue without maybe creating super villainous character um, for the sake of, of thrills or to drum up interest. It's a brilliant concept, let me just say. Plus, the title is brilliant. I want to just note that this is a creation of Ben Stiller, 
people may be still thinking of him as a comedic actor. He partly directs this, but um, he's proven his directing medal one or two times in the past with really large, limited series that are quite serious. This is something, Linda. Yes, this certainly is. And I found it a really interesting uh, for for various reasons, uh, but one of which is uh, that it brings up these issues about what actually motivates people to be productive workers. When you are a worker, presumably you would be working for your personal life, right? Say you have a family and that's what's very familiar to people. And without without that, without that impetus and kind of memories, what would your work like be? Would you actually be productive? So the show is actually exploring that aspect in a really interesting way because some of the workers on the inside are actually really productive because they don't have any private life and they don't actually even know who their uh, outside of work selves are. And some of them have a really hard time just working in that kind of space where they don't have a private or personal life. Somebody calls it the first great TV show of the great resignation. People are aware that so many people have just left their jobs without another job because their work experience has been, okay, I'm done. And the pandemic sort of pushed them to make that kind of decision. Would you agree with that, that this is really emblematic of this time where the examination of are we our work or are, am I something else happening in this quote unquote great resignation makes this more meaningful? I think it definitely relates to the great resignation because um, a lot of the, the people who have left their jobs or quit their jobs um, have done it very deliberately and had to really soul search. What are they actually willing to give up? of their lives and of themselves um, in the context of of COVID um, and all of its dangers and stresses. And also I think that's that's precipitated people to actually really look at their core values and think about uh, what it is about their jobs, right? That um, that is a value to them. And and so I think it's actually caused a kind of reckoning with mm-hmm. some of the people mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, involved in the Great Resignation. Would you agree with that, Michael? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, one of the things about this moment is we're still working through it. Um, and one of the things that art does is it doesn't just represent something that we already know to be true. It allows us to kind of enter into it so that we can work out amongst ourselves things that we're wrestling with. And I think shows like this, continue to give viewers and consumers the opportunity to wrestle with these ongoing issues around uh, what work is, what makes folks happy, what the relationship is between your work life and your so-called, you know, your personal life. Um, this shows it's, it's a kind of, it's a, it's a space to further explore those issues in the artistic realm. And that's one of the great things that art can do for us. All right. Well, moving on, I don't know that there's been a time, at least uh, that I can remember, where there are so many films that really pay attention to culture, people's heritage, ancestry, current culture, but that's a part of the film, and it doesn't necessarily weigh down the story. That's not the story, but the characters are very much immersed as they would be in the culture that they live. 
And it definitely is an example in the new movie Turning Red, which is about a young girl going through puberty. And she's Asian American, or Asian Canadian, I guess. And the film, which is, needs to be noted, is directed by Domi Shi, who won the Oscar for her short film called Bao, which was excellent. And now she's the first woman and first Asian woman filmmaker to direct a feature for Pixar. So first, here's a clip from the trailer of the Pixar film, Turning Red. I'm Maylin Lee. I wear what I want, say what I want, 24 7 I know, it's a lot. But I don't got time to mess around. Oh, about that hustle, am I right? Poor town. This is going to be the best year ever. And nothing's going to get in my way. So the conceit of the film, Linda, is that if uh, she gets uh, upset or concerned or overwhelmed. She turns into a big red panda, which has a reference to some cultural ancestry in the film, but it's an animated feature. And the big thing, which is going to sound like not shouldn't be a big thing, but it is, the main character is a teenage girl, and you just don't see that. And she's talking about issues of transitioning into puberty, which you never see. And apparently this was a great amount of conversation to bring this to reality. So what do you think about Turning Red and what it's doing both for teenage girls uh, being seen on screen and both representing their culture? I think I think it's doing something great. Um, I personally have never seen a um, animated feature about a teenage girl, much less an Asian Canadian teenage girl, and then even less so when an animated picture actually focuses on a teenage girl who's going through puberty. So, so I think all of those things together um, sound like they make for a really, really interesting and um, much needed subject. All of those elements together, um, Asian Canadian teenage girl going through puberty and exploring all of uh, the angst that goes with that. And I'm sure uh, there's there's some interesting issues that will be explored with, uh, with the teenage girl's uh, tensions uh, with, her, with her parents because it's an Asian Canadian family. So there always is that intergenerational yes. mm-hmm. conflict. Um, Michael, what, what do you say? You, uh, of course, are a dean at a college that is all female. And this is uh, very interesting on many levels. However, I just want to say I can't let Disney off the hook because sometimes they try to do culture and they mess it up. It's like almost there. Um, this one seems to be because of Domi Shi's direction where it's supposed to be. So go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I would hesitate to, to really comment on it too much until I'd seen the film. But what I'll say about the, the process that got us to this point is really interesting, right? This is a filmmaker who had a tremendously successful short film that was critically acclaimed. Um, and, you know, she had already touched on issues of ethnicity, heritage, et cetera, in that work. Then she gets the opportunity from Pixar. Really, it's a, you know, once in a lifetime opportunity and unprecedented for um, an Asian American woman to direct feature films. And she leans even more heavily right into some of the content and tells a story that seems that is truly, you know, in many ways, her story or, or deals with themes that are true to her. And I think that's important because 
you know, she could have easily come up with an idea or tried to direct a, a concept that was a little less risky, right? She could have kind of pulled back and, and tried to make something that was uh, more palatable, more comfortable to white audiences, more comfortable to um, folks who are more conservative when it comes to uh, gender and sexuality issues. But she didn't. Uh, she leaned right into it and uh, she backed up her own uh, sort of belief in herself by collaborating with a whole bunch of women uh, on the production team behind the scenes. So this is not a one woman project. I mean, the writer's room, the, the uh, costume design, that's not what they call it in animated film, but many of these positions uh, behind the camera, uh, behind the scenes were filled by women as well. So you have a, a collaborative project here um, being led by um, an Asian Canadian woman with an immigrant family experience who's unafraid to tackle uh, all of the issues uh, that are wrapped up in, in that type of story. So it takes a tremendous amount of bravery and I don't wanna take that for granted, right? Just because she's an immense talent and has an incredible opportunity, she could have gone another direction, but instead she leaned into what she knew to be true. And just to put that in context, uh, Pixar has movies, as as uh, this article says, focused on dudes, 20 out of 24 feature films directed by dudes, 23 out of 24 movies written by dudes, 50 out of 59. So this is this stands apart for all kinds of firsts and including all that both of you have said about, you know, what it means uh, in addition to that. So I'm going to try to squeeze in now transitioning to Oscar time. It's coming up. Um, we haven't heard so much about Oscar So White, but it's not great this year. It's a little bit brown, but that's about it. There are fewer nominations in certain categories, though the the Best Actor category got that. And I want to I want to put that in the context of Coda, which is a film about a young woman who is the only hearing person in her family. Everybody else is deaf because this is a larger conversation about representation. The actor that plays the father has now been awarded already two big awards and he's up for best actor in the category as well. This is a major thing for CODA. This means children of deaf adults because this is a pretty much all deaf cast and a major movie that has gotten quite a bit of attention and in my opinion should. It's really excellently done. But what are we to make of this sort of push-pull? Michael, where, how are you looking at Oscar now within the context of Oscar so white and representation in general? I think we're in an interesting moment because we're certainly better off than we were 10 years ago when it comes to issues of race and diversity in film and racism and power in the film industry. So I want to say that off the bat. This is not a situation where nothing has changed. By the same token, the degree of change, I think, hasn't been quite as intense as many of us would have liked to see when you look at the films that are up this year. And we now have the kind of complicating factor, uh, which I think is ultimately a good thing, that, that these films are you know, produced and distributed in different ways. So Coda, if I'm not mistaken, was from Apple, yes. Apple TV Plus, yes, I Apple, believe. Yes, Apple TV Plus. Right. So when you have these stories about ability and disability, coming to platforms like Apple first. I, I don't think that's a coincidence that these platforms, again, are kind of shaking up uh, the logic of what can be a, a hit film. And they're kind of willing to take uh, a few more chances, perhaps, than the traditional movie studios would have taken certainly 15, 20 years ago. So I do think we're in a moment where we're opening up because of the number of platforms available, where there's pressure uh, behind the scenes uh, for production studios to rethink the kind of stories they're offering to audiences. Because again, we've talked about this before. 
the proof at this point is incontrovertible. You know, people want to see films that have a diverse cast of characters. And it's a complete fallacy that films with uh, people of color as leads won't sell both domestically and around the globe. It's good that we're seeing representation expand in some ways, but we can't lose sight of the racial inequities that remain in the film business. Okay, Linda. I did see Coda and I thought it was a wonderful, uh, uplifting film. So I'm really glad to hear that um, it's being nominated for multiple Oscar nominations, especially that the actor who plays the father, who is um, in real life deaf as well, that he was uh, nominated for a big award. I agree with Michael that even though we've come a long ways um, in terms of representation in the past decade or so, um, it doesn't seem to have been enough um, but hopefully with these streaming platforms and um, more and more perhaps independent production studios or even a Pixar is willing to take more risks uh, with more diverse films, that once it's shown that they succeed with audiences, I'm hoping that things will change even more and hopefully at a quicker pace. I will say this. I hate to be negative nanny on this one point, but, you know, I just don't know how many times you have to prove it. If you look at Black Panther and Crazy Rich Asians, enough said. Plenty of money on the table there. So there ought to be more. But we're still in the conversation and we're still here. I mean, I think it's notable that in the best picture category, the film Drive My Car has gotten quite a bit of attention. And that's a Japanese cast. So there's something there. And... um We'll see. It's something to pay attention to, and we will be continuing to do so. And I thank you all for joining me today. Thanks, Kelly. Thank you, Kelly. Michael Jeffries is the Dean of Academic Affairs at Wellesley College. Linda Liu is a lecturer of sociology at UMass Boston and specializes in cinema, media, and cultural studies. Coming up, it's been over 50 years since Toni Morrison wrote her first novel, The Bluest Eye. The late Arthur tells the tragic tale of Coca-Cola, a young black girl dealing with the trauma of racism. The novel has been adapted for the stage, and Boston-based Huntington Theatre Company is bringing the story to life. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. Callie Crossley.